Hello, I'm Katie Daly. Welcome to Bluegrass Stories, a podcast I do with my friends Akira Utska and Howard Parker. Today we'll be visiting with Dave Shankman of Turtle Hill Banjo. Dave moved from Massachusetts to the Southern Maryland area to take a job with a finance company, and he didn't love it. But he did have a hobby he loved as a coin collector, and he decided to become a full-time coin dealer. Dave has written 10 books on coins and has been inducted into the American Numismatic Hall of Fame. Along the way, he found another love, banjos. Over 30 years ago, he opened Turtle Hill Banjo, which is now located in La Plata, Maryland. I asked Dave about the transition from coins to banjos. It's not a uh, it's not a logical transition, but I was doing the coin business full time and traveling a lot and carrying a lot of money worth of valuable coins, and I didn't like traveling that much, and it, it got to be more and more of a problem, and so uh, I decided to go in the banjo business. I was already uh, buying. I would see a banjo, and uh, I think it's the collecting instinct that you have that that uh, when I would see a banjo and I knew it was a good banjo. If I thought the price was okay, I would buy it. So I started getting a closet full of banjos and uh, then eventually decided that uh, I would have a shop built and go in the banjo business. So I did, and how do you get an inventory of banjos? Well, what I did, I was only buying used banjos. I For the first year, I went to music conventions and guitar shows and I would buy every good banjo that I saw, even if it was priced at retail. And my object was to get enough banjos to attract people to come in. I see. So, And I decided that, well, okay, I'll have 50 banjos, and that'll bring people in from a reasonable radius. Well, it ended up with 200 banjos. I, I was never that good with math. <laughs> so so it did bring people in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and at what point did you get involved with uh, dealers for uh, new banjos and stuff? It was pretty pretty soon afterwards. I think my first dealership was Stelling, mm-hmm. and then I got a, a, a Wildwood Banjos for open backs, and then Deering, and the other companies just came over time. Right. And so at any given time, how many banjos do you have in stock? Now I have, I keep here about 70 or 75, and I have more at the house. Wow. Okay. Now, if I am, in fact, I did buy my first banjo from you. Yes, you did. I have to make that clear. And uh, it was a great experience because when you make an appointment with Dave, you're the only person in the shop, and he pays full time and attention to you and it's like he brings out as many banjos as he thinks you might be interested in and you try them all out and then decide on the one that you that you want um where did you learn that style of of showman i mean salesmanship i don't think it's salesmanship so much as just uh i went in the banjo business because i love banjos and i think that my my goal was to give people an experience where they could actually play different banjos and compare in the same acoustical environment at the same time because you can't remember sound. So if you go one place and hear a banjo and you go somewhere else and hear another banjo, the acoustics are different and you can't really remember sound that well. And over the years, I've always been amazed at the number of people that will come into the shop with a preconceived notion. I, I want this banjo, I want this this banjo, whatever it is. And then when they start playing and comparing, they realize, gee, that's not really what I like. This is what I like. 
and they end up with something completely different. Mm -hmm. Do you think that sometimes they want a certain banjo, not because the sound of the banjo, but the that the sound that the player gets out of it? Oh, absolutely. For example, I'd like to own Alan Monday's banjo, but I'm sure it wouldn't sound the same at my house. I can't tell you how often people have come in my shop and I'll ask them what kind of sound they want, and they'll say, I want to get that J.D. Crow sound. I think, well, the first thing you need is J.D. Crow's right hand. So it, you're right. The banjo will help. A good banjo is definitely a help. But you have to, and you have to like what you play. But practice is uh, what it takes. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have all these banjos. The highest inventory you had at any one time? Probably 200 banjos. 200. Wow. Okay. So um, what is the best seller in here in your shop? The best new banjo now, Neckville. Interesting. By a big margin. Mm -hmm. Because he's kind of revolutionary builder, isn't he? He's very revolutionary, and I love his banjos. And maybe that that transfers to my, my enthusiasm for him might bubble over and influence other people. I can't say that it doesn't. Well, for non-banjo players or people who are not familiar with Neckville banjos, describe what the characteristics are. Well, the, the construction is completely different than any other banjo. It's extremely versatile. You can take a Neckville banjo and change the tone ring from a metal tone ring to a wooden tone ring in 15 or 20 minutes without taking the strings off. That's major surgery on any other banjo. Mm -hmm. uh, most of his banjos have a tunneled fifth string, so you don't have that annoying peg sticking out the side. They have radius fingerboard. They're just very comfortable banjos to play. So a radius fingerboard is kind of a little curved instead curved, of flat. Right. Okay. Sure. And that's easier to play. I think for some people. Uh, Bela Fleck spent a day in my shop, and he complained a little bit about the banjos I had not having radius fingerboards. That he couldn't play them well. I'd like to not be able to play that well. <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, Deering has a, a good time banjo that seems to be popular, and yes. it's lightweight and you can and relatively inexpensive, and you can take it camping or toss it up in the airline overhead bin and not worry about it too much. Do you find that they're successful for beginners or? Absolutely, I. Uh, it's the only inexpensive banjo I'll stock because I know that people will not have trouble with it. And it sounds good. And because the biggest problem is that if you get a banjo and it has problems or buzzing or, or things of that sort, you're going to get dis discouraged and possibly push it under the bed. Mm -hmm. uh, I've probably sold 150 of those good time banjos over the years. And the interesting thing is that a reasonable number of those people have come back and bought better banjos. Nobody's ever wanted to trade their good time banjo so, back. Oh, so they keep they it like for them. when they're oh, yes. traveling and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I I got one of those. It's a very nice banjo. In yeah. fact, I got it from you. You did. I did. Well, if I'm coming in and looking for a banjo, what are the things that I should be looking for? I mean, you mentioned the buzzing strings and all that, but what should I be looking for? Well, to a certain extent, your your price range dictates your options, and. In any price range, there's some choices that are better than others. I can talk very knowledgeably about quality. Uh, sound is another matter. It's subjective. Mm -hmm. So you, you should come in without any preconceived notions. And if you already play, play a number of banjos. If you don't, listen to them. And be sure that you understand what it is that is uh, being offered by that banjo. 
and not be distracted by the shiny stuff going up and down the neck, the inlays and things like that? Well, I love eye candy, and uh, but it has nothing to do with sound. And some people think if they if they buy this fancy banjo, they're going to get a better banjo. Not necessarily. You'll get a prettier one. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't discourage people from that at all, but they should understand what they're paying for. And a good case, of course, is important. A good case is important if you're going to carry it out of the house. Now, I see uh, people who say, keep it in the case. I see other people who say, keep it out so you'll pick it up and play it more. What are you? What's your philosophy? I think if you can, leaving it on a stand is, is wonderful because you will pick it up more. If you have a dog, you might not want to leave it out. Oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> okay. And put it in the case. Yeah, well, if it knocks over, uh, if it's tipped over from the stand, there's a good chance the neck will break. Mm. And that's never a good thing. Right. That is the weak point of the banjo. It's the only weak point. Right. So when traveling, how do you pack the banjo? That's tough. You can you can uh, you can check it, but that doesn't uh, help if they want to be abusive to it. I think Alan Mundy had a neck broken on a banjo that right. he had to check through a number of years ago. Uh, with neck fill banjos, you can take the neck off in in less than a minute, and so you can take in a board in two pieces mm-hmm. in smaller luggage. Smart. That's very smart. Yeah. Okay, um, now I'm a fan of the TV show American Picker, and I know you are also. Uh, then I see them finding instruments yes. occasionally. So if I'm out somewhere poking around or in a pawn shop or wh- wherever, and I come across an instrument and I think I'm getting a good price or it's priced very with quite a price tag what should i be looking for there should i buy it should i get somebody like you to come in with me or well one of the curses of having been in the coin business for a number of years and knowing lots and lots of coin dealers i get phone calls from coin dealers that go in shops and see banjos and want to know whether they should buy them Mm -hmm. i've never had a phone call from somebody that's described a banjo that i thought they should buy because most banjos out there are not worth buying, mm-hmm. and that's probably why they're out there. So there are exceptions. Uh, I've, I've heard some really interesting stories about like? fines. <laughs> well, from, from as I remember the story, a, a fellow antique dealer in central Pennsylvania uh, a number of years ago was in an estate and bought, among other things, a Gibson banjo. He knew nothing about banjos, but he knew it was a Gibson and that was a better thing. So he... He took it back and he hung a $2,000 price tag on it and put it out in his shop. And from what I understand, it sat there about six months and he would have happily taken $1,500 for it, but nobody bought it. So he put it on eBay and the first day it hit $45,000. So uh, there are exceptions to every rule. But it's probably not going to happen to me. No, and less and less. I remember a, a few years ago, I bought a banjo on eBay that uh, was very underpriced, but uh, it was about $2,000. And the lady called me up to find out how to pack it. And we got to talking, and turns out that she owns a, a booth in an antique mall, and she's been an antique dealer for a number of years. And uh, she said, you know, before eBay, I would have probably put this thing out and priced it three or four hundred dollars, but now 
I just put stuff, if I'm not sure, I put it on eBay and let it find its own level. Mm -hmm. So the whole market has changed. And I don't think there's as much out there in shops as there used to be. And what do you play personally? Neckville. Neckville. Hmm. That's the only banjo you have at home? That... It's, I have three of them. I, I, it's the only new banjo I've ever bought for myself. I don't really need to buy. I can steal from myself. Right. But uh, I did buy a Neckville about 20 years ago just because I wanted it. Because it was different, innovative. I just liked them, mm-hmm. and I would I would take them out in the shop and play them, and, and I just decided I wanted to buy one, and so I called Tom Neckville, and he sent me one. But I think, you know, you're, you're very gregarious, and I think running into people and meeting up with other dealers and stuff must be the, a big attraction of this business to you. Absolutely. It's, it's the people more than it. And I think that's, that holds true in the coin business also. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people in both fields, and it's two unrelated worlds that I have, and I like them both. So tell us some of the characters you've met. Characters meaning? Memorable people. Uh, <laughs> well, I love Tony Pass. Right. Of course, he was uh, not somebody I just met. I, I encountered him right after he went into the rim building business, and he was just one of those people that we, we hit it off, and he would call me at least three times a week and talk for a half hour or longer. Um, I think you had a few conversations with him, too. I did, but, you know, um, he made these rims out of sunken wood. Is that yes. okay? Explain. From the bottom of the Great Lakes. Yes. But he made them of a different process. Most banjo rims are made of uh three plies of wood Mm -hmm. steamed and bent with a lot of glue in them he took pieces of wood glued them together and then turned it out on a lathe so the wood was not bent oh and it's the old wood and they've become very popular so whatever gave him any idea to pull wood out of the at the bottom of a lake or something well he didn't that that wood is being used for lots of things i un- i understand i don't know that much about it but it's uh, 150 year old wood and when he uh tony told me that when he uh got his first banjo he he never really learned to play well but he loved banjo music and uh he bought a stelling banjo and at the time stelling was using three ply rims uh and he just he looked at it, and Tony was a retired machine designer. And he thought, well, this is not a good way to build a, a banjo. So he built a rim for it, the way his rims are now. And uh, everybody he took it to at the jam sessions just loved the sound of the banjo. And somehow he got in contact with Scott Zimmerman. And Scott said, well, why don't you come up to IBMA, which was coming up soon, in Louisville, right, and you can share a room with me, and I'd love to see your banjo and meet you. So he came up, and he had his banjo, and everybody looked at it and oohed and nod at the sound. And so everybody said, well, you need to take this to Jeff Stelling and show it to them. And as I understand the story, or as I remember it, uh, he took it by Jeff's table and said, I have a banjo, and everybody says I need to show it to you. And Jeff looked at it and said, well, it's a good banjo. It's a Stelling. He said, well, but I built a different rim for it because I didn't like yours. And and Jeff said, let me see that. And he played it for a minute or so and said, I'll be back. And he took the banjo and disappeared for 45 minutes. And he came back and said, Tony, we have to talk. 
And that's how Tony started building banjo rims. Really? Where did he take it for 45 minutes? Just somewhere to play? Yeah, I, it, it's somewhere in his room, I think. But uh, So Tony agreed to start making rims. He never intended to be in the, in the rim business. And he started making them. And I remember that, that Jeff at the time told me, he said, you know, I love these rims. I don't even like building my banjos without them, but I can't put them in all my banjos. So he was offering as an option because it's an expensive ring, uh, rim. And a couple of years later, he just decided that they would go in every every one of his banjos, and they still are. Wow. So they're still being produced. Yes. He passed a few years back. He did, but he had sold the business to his assistant mm-hmm. who knew the business. All right. Tony Pass, so tell us about another interesting character you've come across. I shouldn't say character. I should say people, I well, guess. Well, I've known so many. It's hard to it's hard to know where to start. I, I know most of the people in the in the banjo world, or I've met them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Erickson was a very interesting person. I've I've uh, met him several times, and he always has more stories than I do. Now, Chuck is out in California. He's known as the Duke of Pearl. <laughs> Because he does all inlays. He does Mother of Pearl inlays, yes, mm-hmm. and, and shell inlays. And he became good friends with Larry Seifel, who owned the Pearl Works right near me. And Larry's business, Larry's no longer living, unfortunately, but his business still goes on, and they do all the inlay work for Martin Guitar and Paul Reed Smith. It's all done on computers. Larry mm-hmm. uh, uh, was the one that uh, came up with the with the process for doing it. And I remember one story of Chuck and uh, Larry, who were very close, and they were the ones that invented the process for what's called ablam, which is abalone in sheets instead of little strips. So for doing things like the holes around the uh, opening in a guitar, you can cut it in seconds instead of taking an hour to put little pieces in. And I remember them arguing about who was going to get the patent. And Chuck was saying, you go ahead and take it, Larry. And Larry was saying, no, you take it, Chuck, which is opposite of what. But they were friends. Right. And, and the business was secondary. So uh, are most of these people uh, uh, come with an engineering background or are they artists, artists or, you know, what are they? What's their education or interest? Wait a minute. If they have banjo dealers, they don't need education. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, seriously, though. Uh, I don't think that a variety of backgrounds. And that's. I think that holds true with any business. Uh, people that go into these kinds of businesses, and again, there's a parallel. One of my longtime friends in the coin business since the 70s uh, taught um, business law at American University. And he gave it up to go in the coin business because that's what he loved. And that's the same reason I think that people go into the banjo business. It's not to get rich because you won't. Right. Um, so who else? Chuck Erickson? You know, Katie, you could have told me in advance I would have come up with some, some good names for you. I think more than the personality, the characters. I had a, a fellow uh, not too long ago that came down and bought a banjo for... Well, let's say it was a lot closer to a hundred thousand than it was fifty thousand. Wow. Uh, this person couldn't play Cripple Creek through. He just wanted to have a banjo, and I think bragging rights has something to do with it. So you've, you run into a lot of characters like that. Mm-hmm. I, I could never understand why somebody would want to do that, but it's not my place to audition people before I sell them banjos. Oh. 
Good thing, or I wouldn't own one. <laughs> well, I wouldn't own the ones I have. <laughs> okay, so uh, $100,000 for a banjo, was it what made it so great? That The rarity of the the, the, rare, the rarity, the fact that it was kind of the, what we, I guess you would call the Stradivarius of, of banjos, if there is such a thing. But I think to a certain extent with old banjos, it's the, having the bragging rights, and that it enters into the equation price-wise. Mm-hmm. Because realistically, when you buy a banjo in that price range, there's a lot of diminishing returns as far as the difference in quality between a, a $5,000 banjo and a $50,000 banjo. You don't get a lot of difference for your money, but you but you get something that very few people have. Right. Well, better if you could play it, wouldn't it? Well, not every yeah. Most people that buy banjos like that can play them. This was a notable exception. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I remember him fondly. By the way, yeah. I guess. And and the banjo, incidentally, was was pretty rare. And and the story was uh, a lady called me from Iowa. And she said, well, we have this Gibson banjo, and it's been in the family since it was new, and nobody wants it. So I took it to the biggest music store in Davenport, and he offered me $200 for it. She said, you know, my uncle paid $165 for this banjo in 1929. Shouldn't it be worth more than $200? And I said, matter of fact, yes. And she said, do you have any idea what it's worth? I said, yeah. I knew what she had. I said, worst case scenario, $8,000. I said, I have one in my shop, price 14000 It's in mint condition. I said, yours might have something to make it worth more. I'd have to see it. Well, she about had a heart attack. And when she recovered, she eventually sent me the banjo. And I called her up, and I said, well, it does have that one little something. And she said, well, is it worth more than the 14000 I said, yes. I said, one like it just changed hands for almost $80,000. Well, then I thought she was really going to have the big one. Right. And she said, are you going to pay me $80,000? I said, nowhere close, but way more than two hundred. Right. And so I bought it from her. Good. So if people are, are listening to this and they have some old banjo hanging around their house from Uncle Fred or whoever, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Well, you, you can, they can call me or they can go on my website, which is turtlehillbanjo.com and email me or they can call me i i have a phone okay 301-274-3441 i think that people there are a lot of good banjos still out there and i've bought a number of them over the years from from families i think the the most important thing for anybody with a banjo like that is to find out what they have and have some faith in the person you're selling it to because you you should get a reasonable price for it uh, and you don't want to sell it for pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So that, and it's a narrow market, so you need to find somebody with the market to, to sell it. I take stuff on consignment sometimes, and then it becomes my responsibility to find the buyer. So there's no catalog or anything out there for them to check it on? No, not oh, really. I see. Okay. Well, any other advice for banjo buyers or sellers? Keep on picking. <laughs> We're asking people... Uh, what are some of their favorite memories, whether it's some an incident that happened or people they met or a picking session they were in or, you know, eating dinner with Earl Scruggs? I don't know. Whatever might be your a fond memory for you. Now, that's the toughest question you've asked me 
because I have a lot of memories. I don't know which well, of the you can fondest. Tell them all. Uh, I think just just uh, interacting with people in the business that have similar uh, likes, loves, if you will, uh, people that like what they do, and I think that most people. Uh, that are in this business and also people that perform because unfortunately, and I, I've, I've, because of my background, my parents were classical musicians uh, and my nephew was, is a rock star. So, so. Well, tell that story. Well, my nephew, uh, my nephew was playing guitar in a rock band in New York and they got heard by a record company and signed to do a CD and the CD sold as I remember, about 80,000 copies, and at, at which point the group gets nothing. And the, group, the company decided to drop them. And some disc jockey in Vermont fell in love with the CD and just kept playing it and uh, encouraging his disc jockey buddies to play it. And first thing you know, it was uh, on the charts. So the company decided they better push it, and it sold 10 million copies. Wow. So... Uh, it was a rags to riches story because uh, most people in my family were classical musicians, and he went really outside the box to to an area where uh, classical musicians might not think it's real music, but uh, he made more money than anybody in the family by a huge margin. And what's the name of the group? Spin Doctors. The Spin Doctors. And he was the guitar. Well, still is the guitar player. Okay. And so your mother and father both attended Juilliard? They met at Juilliard. Okay. They both went on violin scholarships. And you had to learn violin? I did. And I did learn it I, uh, up until the point where I was about 15 and I bought a car and I started looking at girls and violin playing just wasn't cool in my mind. Okay. So, so in other words, I got big enough to say no and did. And eventually went back to playing a little violin, fiddle, mm-hmm. bluegrass, because I loved bluegrass music. Right. And your parents were okay with that? I think my my mother was a more liberal uh, listener than my father. Uh, she would listen to other kinds of music from time to time. My dad was pretty straight-laced, and I think he, I think he was amused by it. And he used to tell me, you shouldn't use that tablet, or you should read real music. Oh. So. <laughs> and, and who was it in Bluegrass when asked if he could read music? He said, not enough to hurt my playing. That was Pete Seeger. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> and true, isn't it? And, and from what I understand, it is true. So your first influence in Bluegrass or in banjos was, was Pete Seeger. I think it was probably the Kingston Trio. Mm-hmm. And I heard them, and they were... I, I just loved the music, and I bought a long neck banjo because that's what people did during that time. And then somewhere along the line, somebody gave me an Osborne Brothers record, and all of a sudden, it's like the banjo went into overdrive. And suddenly, the Kingston Trio didn't seem all that great to me. And so eventually, I got a bluegrass banjo. Okay. Did you ever tell Sonny this story? I, I don't know whether I did or not. I've only met Sonny a few times at IBMA, but, but so I don't know him well. Well, Dave, we've talked about these high-end banjos, but I see you have fun with these. I remember that, I mean, what's this, like a dance party, little uke, and some are wrapped up. It looks like a Gene Autry or some cowboy. Uh, <laughs> what are these little fun things? Those are banjo ukuleles, and I have a collection of those, and... Uh, 
this was primarily a fad during the 20s and 30s. They, they're played like a ukulele, and they're strung like a u- ukulele, but they have a different sound because they have banjo heads on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, a number of years ago, I put a website up just for banjo ukuleles. Well, and what is the site? Banjoukes.com. Okay. And there's nothing really for sale in it, although I have sold a few things. As I'm getting older, I don't want to, to leave too much of this behind. But um, it's probably got 50 pages of just historical information, photographs of rare banjo ukuleles, and uh, and information about the companies that, that made them. Right. And some of them really are kids' toys, right? The ones that you're looking at are kids' toys. But there's some over there that are regular banjo ukuleles, and there's some gibsons from the 20s over there mm-hmm. so and so we would probably have seen these with the mummers in the mummers i don't know parade. if the mummers use them or not they use tenor banjos okay but i don't know if they if they play those or not these are played like ukuleles not like tenor banjos all right and so the call that uh, was uh website was banjo ukes.com banjo ukes.com look that up 50 pages of fun well, something like that. You can't you can't get that anywhere else. Maybe I geeked out on that one. <laughs> that was Dave Shankman of Turtle Hill Banjo. You can visit with him by appointment at his store in La Plata, Maryland, or online at turtlehillbanjo.com. <laughs>